Hey, everybody. It is episode 91 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris and Steve coming at you from Austin, Texas. How are you doing today, Steve? I'm doing fantastic. Excellent. And I am also doing fantastic, and we are excited to come at you with the conclusion of our What Does the Race Require series. We've already talked in episodes 86, 88, and 89 about distances from the 800 up to the half marathon in terms of what those races require in training. And today we're going to be talking about the beast of them all, the marathon, which I know many listeners are eager to hear us talk about. And even though we've we've probably riffed on marathon training more than anything else <laughs> in our podcast, I, I'm hoping we'll add some new nuggets to the conversation today. Whatever. We'll see. If not, we will never, it'll be... We'll it'll never be never a not have things to talk about. <laughs> when it comes to yeah. marathon. <laughs> right. If not, it'll be a good reinforcement of all of those things for sure. Also wanted to thank everybody for listening to our last episode, episode 90, sort of our experiment with live calling, live predicting and calling those races was a lot of fun for us. So far, I've gotten positive feedback from listeners on it. And maybe that just means that the haters are silent. But thanks to those <clears throat> that have reached out that appreciated the format. And we certainly had fun with it and learned a lot. And I think that's something we can continue to play with. For those that can't watch it or don't want to pay the NBC gold fee, then the, the basically the play-by-play radio call from us might not be a bad alternative, Steve. And as, as I think somebody said on our podcast training group page, they were just happy that there was no Craig Maz back in their ear. Listening or watching <laughs> watching those races. So, if that's that all is we faint praise, Chris, very faint praise. Anyway, <laughs> exactly. we'll take it. Right, the bar is very low there, but we will take it. All right. So as we always do, we've got to start with some running current events, and then we'll jump into what does the marathon require in training. We're going to start with an announcement that came a couple weeks ago that we didn't get to on the prior episodes. But Gwen Jorgensen of the Bowerman Track Club has announced that she's joined the Chicago Elite Field coming up here in about three weeks. And she'll be joining her teammate, Amy Hastings Craig, in that field with Jordan Hesse, of course, as well. And a generally pretty stacked women's field. This one is interesting, Steve, because they've been very coy since she joined the Bowerman Track Club in the spring as to when her first marathon might be. And even they didn't really know when her first half would be, but she did do that in Houston. So this, this one kind of clearly wasn't necessarily in the long-term plans, or at least it came up a little bit later and, and in terms of their planning and just popped into the schedule magically. Now we know Jerry is very, very keen on, only putting her on the start line when he feels like he can get what he needs from her or not have it demoralize her in any way. What do you think, what do you think this means for Gwen's preparation for the marathon? I don't know. You know, I think, you know, you made the statement that they would never put her in harm's way. You didn't say it exactly that way. That's sort of my translation. But I think that there might be, ulterior motives here as you and I talked offline about this um, on a recent drive to and from Dallas and um, 
you know, you, you made the point that you thought perhaps with Amy in the race that this would be good, a, a great opportunity for Gwen to sit or maybe even do some work and still get in a great race effort. I wondered about that because I thought that was a really good thought you had there, but I still think it would be awfully risky for Gwen's first to be in a position where she was helping somebody else. So I don't know. I think there's a little more, but I do think that there might be a little cat and mouse going on here and that this is not a straight up bold face debut, going to get after it winner, you know, no holds barred kind of effort. Um, I'm really torn on this one, Chris. I can't tell whether that will be the case that she'll just go for it or if there'll be some ulterior motive, or maybe it's some kind of thing like I like to do where with my athletes frequently, where I'll make a statement that says, this is our first and main and plain basic object objective. We don't have a plan B, but there still is a plan B if some other shit happens out there. Right? So yeah. I, I think that might be what we're looking at here. Whereas Come on, Gwen. Let's give it. Let's give us your first effort. Obviously, training must be going really, really well if she's doing this well. I don't follow her on Twitter or Instagram, so I don't know where she's at with training. Um, but she must be in good shape if she's going to run this high profile a race. Um, and then with a teammate there, it offers her that opportunity. Also, if things don't go well, to sort of do what Desi did at Boston before she went and stole the whole damn race. And that's be ready to give some help or make some breaks or do some things while still getting something out of it if it doesn't go the way that she thinks. So I have a feeling that's probably sort of a, a main goal of A, but a, but a sort of a, a back out plan or an option plan for some other scenario should it need be. What do you think? Well, I, I still land kind of in the camp of what I talked to or talked to you about before, which is that. To me, this if if I'm her coach, this is a race that has a certain purpose. And I think a purpose in this case that would be very valuable is just simply getting comfortable with running in a legitimate lead pack that's going out at a hot pace. Because the alternative to me in this situation is for her to basically end up in no woman's land and have to solo a time trial in Chicago, which doesn't seem like a smart idea even if she was ready, you know, we've got to remember her first marathon was in New York city in 2016 when she came back after winning triathlon gold in Rio a handful of months later and finished 14th overall at New York. She ran a 241 there. And so this will be her second marathon and the first, first as a Bowerman track club member and first real purely running focused kind of training block before it. And so you know, you've got to think that she wants to use this as a solid stepping block or building block to something else. And and I would just, to me, it just it would seem odd to put her in a position where she'd be running solo. Because we know Jordan's going to be going for the American record, which means you know, probably 219 flat pace at a minimum for the, yes. through the first half. I would imagine Amy Hastings Crag is going to be considering something like that as well for her not too far off of that and so you know that those two americans will be up with with the big dogs going for the big pace and and if and if glenn's trying to run a 224 to 226 then it's not going to be very fun <laughs> to be, you know, kind of flying solo to do that so so to me that only leads to one conclusion which is that she's there to get into that lead pack perhaps 
help Amy some, but more than that, really just get the experience of running with the big players in this game, which even if she can't hold with them, will give her some experience that she can use running in a pack like that down the road. Because at the end of the day, she doesn't have that much time to get ready for her goal in 2020. I mean, that's two years. But in marathoning, training mode, timelines, you know, that's that's not very long uh, at all. So I just feel like they're going to use this as an opportunity to get some fast and furious experience in that lead pack, go out over in overhead and perhaps blow up, but at least have some experience running as long as she can at paces that will put her with the world's best. Yeah, that makes sense. But I just wonder if that's something Gwen can do. Yeah, it's a fair question. And it's and it's not without risk, <laughs> for sure. Right. Because it seems like if you're going to start this race, then you you would have a plan to finish it. But if you go out too hot and ha- then have to jog at home and kind of uh, put your tail between your legs and you know have a really slow second half, that wouldn't be very fun. But also going out and running a time trial by yourself isn't very fun either. So it's going to be interesting. It'll be an interesting subplot to the Jordan Hasse and perhaps Amy Hastings Craig attempt at an American record. And you know, Chris, I think in your scenario, the other thing that someone like Jerry's probably thinking, but he may or may not share with Gwen is that she's probably going to run the same fucking time. Either one of those scenarios. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. So, for, you know, in his calculus, he's like, well, shit, this is what I'm going to get two twenty five to two twenty seven. So, Either way, I could either make her suffer and make her think that she's going the whole way or have her run by herself and get the benefit from that. But the benefit is probably not a benefit to Gwen, what we know about her to this point. But who knows, right? Who knows? We will see, but it's going to be it's going to be interesting. And I think by the time we get to Chicago, we'll have to throw that in as a bonus prediction. Gwen's time in this race. I agree. All right. Going to our next one, we've got. We've got to talk again about Colleen Quigley, one of our favorite guests to gate, another Bowerman Track Club lady. She's been racing in Europe, in, in Europe, as we alluded to when we talked about her 403 in the 1500 recently. She came back and then followed it with a steeple in Berlin and got a PR by five seconds, ran 910, running away from that field. She took the lead at halfway and basically ran them slowly off of her wheel. Ultimately, had a, a gap of five to six seconds by the time she finished in a strong, powerful closing lap, which tells us that Colleen is on form and ready to compete with Courtney and Emma next year if she can stay healthy. I mean, this only puts her, I think, five seconds behind Emma's season best. So it's it's it puts her in that conversation. And if she could stay healthy through USA's, it's going to make it really fascinating, as we've already discussed. Any comments on this result from Colleen? No, just like jaw drop. You know what I mean? I mean, that, <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge effort. And it's not just that the time was run, Chris, because, I mean, she ran this race the exact opposite way that Emma and Courtney ran theirs in Zurich, as we watched and, and, and did the play-by-play on. So... You know, it's so much easier. It'll be so much easier for her to walk away from this season feeling like she's on top of things with a huge turnaround and a huge 
come back and be in a very big, ha- in a very positive place with a great race result, charging as she did that last 1K and running really, really fast. That's a huge race for her. And then, you know, Emma and, and Courtney are coming off of a race where they were not happy with the result, even though they ran what I think was pretty solid races. They just, I just couldn't go with the best and the best of the world. And so does this actually put, um, does this actually put her in a better place? Is Colleen in a stronger position at this point in time um, than the other two are coming off the season? So it's really hard to judge these things, but I'm sure that both Colleen and her coach are very, very happy with the way that they decided to play this season out. A lot of people probably would have pushed Colleen to run at Zurich if she could have gotten an entry. She probably would have run it if she had gotten an entry. She just didn't have the results this year. But it probably turns out to be in her favor. She gets a great PR, a great race, crushes that last K, especially the last 400, and walks away from the season saying, not only did I come back from the season, I ended up with my best result at the end. She's got to be on cloud nine right now. Yeah, and she's got one more race, the Fifth Avenue Mile coming up in New York this coming weekend, where you know it's kind of one of those fun races that the result doesn't matter so much as it is just kind of having a fun finish to the season with a bunch of with a, with a bunch of U.S. women. Jenny Simpson's won that race basically every single year for the last, I think it's six times, six years in a row or something like we'll that. Call it seven. Call it yeah. seven. Shelby's not running. Yeah, so so you know, so she can go into that race without expectations, and if she somehow pulls a miracle victory, then it's gravy. The thing that impresses me most about Colleen with this late season push after coming off injury is just simply the confidence that she brought into these races. You know, she did that thousand meter race where Laura Muir was in the field, and you know she was in there with a bunch of eight hundred and fifteen hundred meter runners that you know, really out of, out of her normal wheelhouse and, you know, finished, I think fifth in that race when she really shouldn't even been near the front at all. And then she came back, won that, uh, 1500 by, and in, I think it was Poland by basically taking the lead with a lap to go and never letting go. And then she ran this race from the front in the last half, just so confident. So it's clear that, and then, on Instagram, she's talking about winning the Fifth Avenue Mile, even though she's, you know, probably not even a top two or three favorite. So, it that confidence is what most impresses me most, and just her willingness to take the lead in these races and then deliver on it, you know, and not sort of let that make her crumble at the end. It's really impressive. I think that bodes well for next year. It's going to make make for some really interesting tactics when when she's competing against her teammate and then I'm over next year at various points, but I think it bodes well for her potential for sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, I, I'm, I think she should feel really, really good about the season. It's been a great year. And you know what, Chris, even though we just made a prediction that Jenny was going to win her seventh, it's an athlete like Qualine who can kind who's running at this level, who can kind of come in and make a bit of a splash and surprise some people's. And we know with Colleen's strength that, she will probably be pulling that train and trying to get everybody stretched. So when that kind of a race plan is in play, maybe she can win it. Yeah. Plus she has no pressure. You know, it's not like she's expected to win. It's all gravy. So she can be aggressive and see what happens. 
it's also a slightly downhill race. So, you know, I think that plays to her advantage. So it's, it's going to be interesting. We will see, but definitely looking forward to next year and, and hopefully they've learned her and Jerry have learned how to keep the injury demons at bay, which she's battled with at various points over the last couple of years. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. <clears throat> All right. So last thing to talk about before we switch to the marathon training discussion is we got to talk about the US 20K road race championships, with went, which went off this past weekend in New Haven. The, the, uh, the venerable Leonard career came, <laughs> came back for a repeat on the men's side. We'll start there, which in a really, really hot, hot day, all the athletes were talking about how tough it was in terms of heat and humidity. The, the start line temperatures were in the low to mid seventies with high humidity. It ended up warming up into the nineties. Probably not by the time they finished, but it was on the path probably into the 80s as they finished. All the elites talked about how tough the conditions were. And you can see it from the time, <clears throat> career running basically just over an hour in a 20K, which is you know a little bit shy of, of a 21.1K half marathon. So... You know, the time wasn't impressive, but the victory is, and I think it's good for him to get back on the top of a podium after having some clear struggles through the middle of this year. His teammate, Heron Lagat, got second, and Kia Dundina was third. They were both about nine, eight, nine seconds back uh, to each of those places, respectively. But from what I could tell, this was Lenny's, Lenny's race from the beginning, essentially, and he kind of gradually pulled away from them to take the win. So good to see him back on the top of a podium. Yeah, I mean, he ran. He definitely needed that win. I mean, his season has been pretty lackluster. I mean, it would any other American would be jumping and doing backflips for the success that he's had this year, but it it's not what we were expecting from Leonard Career, given what we've seen from him over the last year or so. So. It's good to see him back. Um, you know, the weather discussion was really interesting to me because I'm like, that's Austin weather all the time. But I guess they're not really ready for it in New England, up in New England. So, <laughs> right, right, yeah, no big deal here. <laughs> As I'm doing a race tomorrow night in what will be 90 degree weather. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's not that. But anyway, good to see him back, and hopefully this bodes well for going into another world championship year next year on the women's side. None other than Sarah Hall got it done, continuing just to show her range and her just willingness to kind of consistently put herself in these races. She and Allie Kiefer who finished fifth in New York last year and who signed with Wazelle and has been kind of all over the interwebs this year talking about, you know, body positivity and be comfortable, you know, with however you're, you know, built and so forth. Uh, they had a, basically it's a sprint finish. I put that in air quotes because it was <laughs> neck and neck until the final straightaway or so. And then Sarah basically decimated her by 16 seconds or so of the final, basically hundred meters. It's, it sounded like Allie said afterwards, she's like, everything was going well until the last 50 meters. 
it sounds like once she kind of got gapped, she fell apart and jogged it in. But impressive from both of these women, Sarah, to continue to show form and show that she's going to be somebody to be reckoned with in the marathon trials in 2020. And then Ali Kiefer, who's relatively new in the game, but who's just being competitive here and, you know, relatively new in the game at this level, who's just being competitive here at a distance that isn't necessarily in her wheelhouse. So it's cool to see those two duke it out for one and two. Yeah, I think uh, Ali Kiefer definitely comes in with a win on this one, even though she didn't win it. She's got to come out of this feeling really, really good. A name who people may or may not recognize, but who, as you said, has been running really well this year and um, looking forward to seeing how her, how her fall plays out. But Chris, Sarah Hall, I mean, what a year she's had. She even she came off of injury because she ran two marathons pretty much back-to-back, and then we kind of wrote her off for a little bit. But man, if she doesn't come back, her ferocity in racing, you, we're going to have to take that into consideration when we talk about the um, Olympic Trials Marathon. Yep. And no matter how much I'm going to poo-poo her about about what she'll get done on race day, she's a different runner now. She's a different competitor now, and and man, she's ready to she's ready to fight no matter who it is, and she's ready to fight hard. So I don't know. I mean, Sarah Hall, I was probably you know a year ago not that high on her, but now we've got to take her into consideration as a discussion of top three in making that team. I mean, we're still a long way out from the trials in atlanta but i still think this string that she's been on her year 2018 so far has been phenomenal yeah probably her best year as a composite as a pro and and as you said she's just showing that confidence to win races now versus she was a bridesmaid you know a lot in the past and you know i think and, and, and if you look at her 2018, she's won in different ways. She's, you know, she finished 2017, basically winning off the front at CIM has won different ways and been competitive in different ways this year in a variety of races from the marathon to, you know, you know, all, to basically all, all, all distances. And it's going to mean, you know, I don't, I don't know if she's going to be in the podium discussion for the trials, but she's definitely going to be in the tactics discussion for the trials. Because I think she's somebody who could do something bold at the beginning of that race to try to put people on edge or to go off the front and demand that people either respond or let her go and then see what happens. I mean, I think she's somebody who could mix up the tactics early in the trials in 2020 that would make it really, really interesting. So... Definitely something to watch. I'm rooting for her for sure. Seems like she's been due to have a year like this since she came out of Stanford however many years ago, 13 or 14 years ago. So it's good to see it. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, solid intro there. And we now need to talk about our, our favorite race distance. Um, uh, <laughs> the marathon and i know we've got a lot of marathon errs that listen to us so this may be the one they've been waiting for the most in terms of this what does the race require series i want to start by reminding the audience about some things we've mentioned in the prior episodes again if you go back and listen 86 88 and 89 you don't necessarily have to have listened to those 
yet to get them to get something out of this episode, but I do want to do a couple things by way of recap before we dive into marathon training. One is just a reminder that you know, what we said at the very beginning about all of these races from 800 meters to a marathon, we kind of honed in on two important commonalities in their training. One is certainly aerobic development, the fact that miles matter and that volume is important. Long runs are important for all distances, regardless of whether you're running 800 or a mile up to the marathon. So that's one point we made up front. Second point is that economy work or efficiency work to work on your speed and form and efficiency year round is critical for all of these races, whether you're doing the 800 or the marathon. And then I want to remind people that how we ended our last episode, episode 89, which is as we sort of previewed this one, we talked about for the marathon specifically, how important it is if you're going to run the marathon and expect your best in the marathon, how important it is to train in different blocks at varying distances throughout the year so that you can improve all aspects of your running, which will only lead to improvement in the marathon. So I just want to make those reminders and reflect on those things. And I don't know if you have anything to add by way of intro there, Steve. No, I mean, I, the only thing I have to add is just, there was a recent, I listened to a recent uh, interview with Galen Rupp. He just ran a, a, a 10 mile race, I think in, um, in Holland and yep. the inter- the interview it's actually a really good a really good interview because the interviewer a female asks just rapid fire quick succession questions that were not the standard fare that Galen usually gets and he answers um in some rather I wouldn't say I guess for Galen it's surprising in surprising ways so a little bit more openness and unguardedness from him he actually felt like he had a bit more of a personality in this one, but his meant he meant they she mentioned his success at two oh six and made a big deal of it, and he basically said, "Yeah, well, that was supposed to be coming for a long time, and basically, I feel like I'm even faster than that." And then she said, "Well, what do you think it is that's been a, a difference maker?" And he said, "Really hard, long runs." And he said, "We've always done long, hard runs in our program." But that's pretty much what we're going to be talking about today, Chris, is what the race requires. One of our main topics here will be what actually needs to be, what the actual race requires is doing some work for long, hard runs. And we'll be talking about that. But I just use that as a sort of a, an intro, and maybe we can link to that article, that video, Chris, about, about his answers to that, um, because I do think they're going to play out and be very applicable to this episode. Well, that's the perfect segue, Galen. Thank you <laughs> for for this discussion, which is that you know Galen's point is right on, which is that for the marathon, there's lots of things that are important, and we'll get to all of them. But certainly, what you do on your long runs and on longer, harder workouts is critical to build that resilience to cover you through 26.2 miles and allow you to. You know, to to keep your head in the game, to maintain your pace, to ideally close out a marathon. You know, it's it's all about building that resilience, and that's one thing I think that also a lot of elites have trouble with, especially depending on what kind of 
program they're coming from. When they make that marathon transition, they might have the raw speed. They might even have the overall volume, but they aren't necessarily used to the really long, sustained, hard work that we that we embed, you know, both in our midweek longer workouts as well as in our long runs themselves. So let's let's just start there. But before we talk about long runs with workouts or longer workouts, let's talk about just long runs for a second, Steve. Because obviously with the marathon, and we talked about it with the other distances, the long run is important. But as you get to the marathon distance, it's obviously hyper important. And the length of it is probably longer than for any other distance. You know, as we said, Nick Willis, who's a miler, does 18 mile long runs. That's about the most I would recommend anybody do for a distance from half and, you know, to shorter races. But for the marathon, you know, we are firm believers that you've got to get your 20 milers, your 20 plus milers in. So let's just start there because I know a lot of people ask me this question. And I had a conversation with an athlete who's new to my group this week. And she was looking at my schedule for, for a race, her races in December. She was looking at my schedule for that, my long run schedule for that, for my veterans, which has seven, potentially seven 20 mile runs on it. And she was like kind of choking on that. <laughs> and she's, this is somebody who's done four marathons before who has experience coming into my group, but has never followed a program that had more than three 20 milers. And she's like seven. That sounds crazy. You know, is that even like, is that even good for you? You know, it was sort of the, the question I got. And, you know, and obviously the answer to that is, is more nuanced than just do seven 20 mile runs because, Everybody who's doing that in my in my group has been with me for a while, is experienced at this, is training for a variety of paces, but has experience at those distances and is trained and prepared to do that many 20-mile runs if done properly. But let's just talk for a second about that kind of concept, you know, Steve, about how many 20-milers do you have to do over distance or 20-plus milers? What do you think about when you're thinking about building the long-run schedule? Well, I can, this is a, this is the, I'm going to toot our horn for just a second, Chris, because we don't get to do it very often, but what we've been doing at Rogue for the last 15 years plus is running what I call the, the most, the, 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 one of the longest running and greatest like experiments on the adult marathoner. So we have for 15 years have been running marathoners through program after program after program, basically coaching marathoners for two, sometimes three races. We've tried to cut that down, but two to three races a year. We'd like to get it to one or two races at most a year, but we've been coaching people for 15 years through many, many, many marathon cycles. And so we've learned a whole lot of information. I have as a program director, having written so many different marathon programs. And I think, Chris, it was about four or five years ago when one of my key athletes, one of my athletes who has been trying to run a really fast time for a long time, he's the fastest runner I have in my team road group, but he kept running into situations where he was fading at the end of his race. And I kept trying to figure out what the hell was going on and why he was fading so much and what was happening with it. Because, Chris, all along through all these years, we have been doing not just long runs and a good number of long runs, 
We've also done a lot of hard quality workouts. In fact, if people, people who have been coached by me for many, many years have said I've gotten softer on my athletes over the years because my, my sort of what we used to call rate, what we call now race preps, but we used to call them soul busters. They've come up with all kinds of different names. They have gotten easier, quote unquote, because of a basic misconception I had over the years that I had to figure out to break. I broke this misconception and came to a better realization through the experimentation over many years on adult athletes. And what I found out was getting people to the edge of what they're capable of is a very important thing, but it doesn't, it is not more important than running time after time after time, the amount of time that you're going to be running for your marathon distance. Now, you and I are both big believers in running the distance because we, we don't, um, we know even, you know, four and a half hour, five hour marathoners, they've got to have some time on their feet running that distance. But if we're talking especially about our listeners who are in that three hour to four hour range, I was just not riding enough long, long runs. And there were not enough runs over the 20 mile distance so that when runners were getting to that final 10K, Chris, they were approaching the longest they'd done. Um, or they were approaching the longest, they, they were approaching distances run way faster than they'd run before and they weren't ready for that load. And so, now having runners do five, six, seven, maybe even eight or nine 20 milers plus over the context of a marathon prep. Chris, we've really limited that super heavy legged, I can't move, I've got no ability to close feeling that so many marathoners recognize. So if you as a listener are an athlete who has run maybe three or four or five marathons and you've only done three or four 24, 20 milers total and no 22 or 24 mile run distances and your experience is that your legs are dropping off of you over the last 10K, I can almost guarantee you it's because you haven't done enough 20 plus mile runs. Because now when you do those 20 plus mile runs, you're running much longer than you will run when you run or approaching the amount of time you will run by running a 26.2 mile race. And if you get to 20 miles and if you don't get to 20 miles and don't get there consistently, then 26, even at a faster pace, it get, it's not a place you've been. It's not somewhere you've been consistently. And so your legs just rebel. They're like, we've never been through this. The nutrition isn't working. You're at your positive reinforcement isn't working. Your mental attitude isn't working. Why? Because you're in the place that you've never been before. So I think the single most important thing that we've changed at Rogue is piling on these 20 plus mile runs. And I think it is the most important and the most critical piece of the puzzle of what we do. Not the only one, but the most important piece. So if those listeners out there haven't done three, four, five plus 20 mile runs before their marathon, they need to do that because it is the single greatest indicator of race success. Yeah, I completely agree. And I also remember when I first started marathon training, I remember when I would do a 20 mile run following when I first started, I was following an online schedule, just trying to get it done like everybody else. And I remember, you know, after that initial one and after subsequent marathons that I did early in my running career, I would do a 20 mile run and I would be so debilitated that I couldn't do anything else the rest of the day. And now 
obviously over years of experience, but also because, you know, I've learned that got to do more 20 mile runs in a season to be really be truly ready for a marathon. I can do a 20 mile run and it's not really that big a deal in terms of how it affects me physically. You know, yeah, I'm a, you know, a little bit more sore than if I'd ran 16, but it's not so different than, than, you know, any other long run. And so, you know, it's a sign for me that my legs my body in general, mentally, those 20 mile runs are just not as impactful on how it affects me negatively inside a training block. And I see that in my athletes as well. Now, of course, some people are going to be like, that's crazy. How could I do seven? I'm going to hurt myself. And yeah, you can't hurt yourself if you don't do it the right way. And one of the things that is key for us in terms of our marathon blocks is longer marathon training blocks. You know, a lot of the schedules that you can get online are 14, 16, 18 week schedules that pretty much build you linearly up to some peak mileage and then you taper, you know, and you might have two to three 20 mile runs in there. We like to build 22 to 24 week marathon schedules where you have this ability early on in the schedule to build your volume get to a long run that's a little bit longer early in the cycle so that when you get to those 20 so 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 one you can get to 20 miles sort of earlier because you started building sooner but also so that by the time you are doing those 20 mile runs you're more ready for that work so that's one point which is that you want to think about lengthening your marathon training blocks to give yourself the proper time to build your base mileage to get up to these longer distances sooner in your cycle. Also, of course, you want to think about building this over seasons in that if you know you do maybe four 20-mile runs this season before a marathon, next time you think about five or six. So don't necessarily go from one in a season to seven, but it's something you can build over time with experience that your legs will become more resilient too over time. So that's two. Third thing I'll mention is that we rotate in a down week with our marathon cycles in in terms of the long run, especially where we'll do two up weeks and then a third down week. So we'll have two building long runs where we might be building distance or holding at 20 or 20 plus, and then a drop week, which can range anywhere from 10 miles for a marathoner to 16 miles for a marathoner, depending on the level of that marathoner. So essentially you're building in every third week, this drop week to give your body a little bit of, you know, recovery before you go back up the following week. And then the final thing I'll mention is we really emphasize on those easy long runs that you have to run easy conversational efforts. For us, that translates to about a minute per mile, as I think we've talked about on the show previously, a minute per mile slower than your target marathon pace or slower so that you get into a, an aerobic zone where you're developing the right part of your aerobic system and you're also putting the least amount of stress on your neuromuscular system just so that you can stay healthy. If you go too fast on these long runs, then it's going to take more out of you. You're going to not only be in the wrong aerobic zone and make it counterproductive, 
but also you're going to get yourself hurt and then not be able to do as many long runs as you need to do. So that's our sort of rant on the long run, Steve. I do want to talk quickly about 20 versus 22 versus 24 versus over distance. Of course, you have the famous 30 miler that our advanced athletes will do in the spring. And so talk, talk to us about your philosophy as it relates to 20 plus mile runs. Like how many of those do you need? Is there a certain number that matters? How do you think about it? Well, Chris, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to look at that, but basically I think it comes down to this. If you're in a group and you're training with a coach, do whatever the fuck coach tells you to do. As long as you're doing substantial numbers or good numbers of 20, 20 plus mile runs. Um, if you're doing it on your own and you're deciding for yourself, I usually think 24 miles for nearly everyone is far enough. Now, I love, as my podcast listeners, podcast training group knows, you know, Chris, we love to throw in a 26.2 mile run when somebody says, I have a marathon neck coming up and I'd love to jump into it. We love having people do that. We ask them to do it as a hard run where they run basically 15% slower than they would run on um, their race day, um, which sounds like it's going to be relatively easy. But I know you know this from personal experience. It's not always very easy. But unless you have an experience where you have an opportunity to do something like that, I think for most people, 24 miles is really is really about as far as they need to go. If you're, especially if you're an individual and you're not training with a group, if you're training with a group, just ask other people in the group how far they think is the farthest they want to run. You know, Chris, we do each 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 season. We get ready for Boston. We've got a thirty miler that we have in our schedule. Um, it's been a no nutrition run frequently. But there's nothing magical about that 30-mile distance except that we know going into the key spring cycle, we usually have really good weather, so I know I'm not going to kill anybody through that. Usually we'll have a decent weather day when we do that. Um, and so I just do it because it's such a great mental boost, and everybody else buy, everybody buys into it. They've seen the results from it. But when somebody else hears from another group or somewhere around town says, I can't believe you guys do a 30-mile run, I'm like, there's no magic in that distance. It's just that we've all decided that that's the number that we're excited about doing. And we've now done it for a while. So there's some history and there's some ex expectation of what will occur in it. And it becomes a bit more of a rite of passage. So I don't think that there's really a race. I do think 24 is important. Now, the one caveat I have for this is that those folks who are running five, five and a half, six hour plus marathons, they need to be careful. Um, this is, uh, I don't coach a lot of athletes that are in that zone. And so I do have a caveat about saying, I don't have enough experience on a week to week, month to month, year to year basis where I feel comfortable suggesting multiple 24 plus mile runs for someone who's running at those paces. And the reason is, is because they're out there for a much longer period of time. And is that bang for the buck there. Do we get enough return on investment? So what I do with my folks who are running um, four hours or more on that 30 mile day, I don't let them run that far. I limit them to a, a run time goal. I let them only run a certain amount of time. I don't let them run um, the full 30 mile run distance. So 
Um, keep that in mind for those of you, and Chris, I, those of you who are running in that five plus hour marathon range. Another caveat here too, Chris, is beginner marathoners, we don't have them running 22 and 24 mile runs. We have them getting up to 20, maybe in some cases, if we've got a long enough ramp, I'll give them a 22, but mostly I just try to get them to 20 because our first time marathoners who are not looking at a basic goal time, but they're looking for just a completion, then we don't need to put them in harm's way and have them go over 20 miles. Now that means that their race day experience is going to be a real, real tough race, but we get them ready for that psychologically. We prepare them for that. And in most cases, after they get done with that marathon, then they're ready. They're ready to, to expand beyond the 20 mile run distance. And they're ready to add those multiple distance runs. But Chris, you have some runners that you've coached over the years who have been a little bit slower. How do you approach that? And maybe also talk a little bit about how you approach somebody who might be a first time marathoner as you make recommendations for the long, the longest run distance they should be looking at. Yep. Well, first timers certainly agree completely that 20 miles is the most they need to go. I never push, I never push a first timer past that. I think it's sufficient in order to cover the distance. And I will say this for some veterans on occasion, I will choose that their max also be 20 because they might have history already at 22 or 24. And if a cycle is like, like now somebody training for Chicago marathon, as an example, where they're doing 20 mile runs with workouts, potentially in August and September here in Texas, when the heat and humidity are still out of control, I don't find that I need to punish them by making them do 22 or 24 miles necessarily because they're going to be getting challenged by that heat and humidity at the same time, which is probably going to be extending the total time they're out there anyway. So there's also reasons why I might say 20 is a max for a veteran as well. Let me cut in here real quick, Chris. I agree 100% with that assessment. I almost never give those 22 and 24 mile quality sessions to my advanced level marathoners in the summer because of the heat. But I do do 20 milers with a lot of work and I do do a 22 and a 24 to be sure they've done it. But as you said, not a lot of them because it can be so, it costs more than it benefits. Yep. And then as it relates to, you know, I've coached several five and a half hour marathoners. I don't think I've had anybody slower than that or less fast than that, but several in the five to five and a half hour range. And for those athletes, typically I'll just simply have a conversation about it because I found that as it relates to time on their feet and how they're handling the long runs, it becomes then a, a very individual conversation as to what's the maximum amount of time that we want them out there, what that means for the distance that they'll be covering in that time frame, given the paces they're trying to run. And so typically I will have individual conversations with those athletes just to make sure they're not putting themselves in an unsafe situation because there's no reason to do a six hour long run. Exactly. <laughs> you know, for example, you know, sometimes they might do five hour long runs if it's hot and we're doing 20 miles and they're taking their time and as they should, that might make sense. But for some of them, it doesn't too. I've also taken a runner like that and I've said, Hey, I want you to max out at four and a half hours because of the way they're handling that load and their experience in the race. And there's a variety of factors that then come into play with each individual athlete that 
might dictate how I handle those situations. But it is an important consideration and something to think about for those that are going to be, I think really anybody that's running five hours or, or, or beyond should, should think about potentially putting a max time parameter on their long runs versus looking purely at distance. Now, let's talk about long run workouts because that's the other part of our training that you don't necessarily find in every training program is is quality built into the long run. And we do it in a variety of different ways. And those ways typically change from season to season as we try to experiment with different things. And we also want to just provide some variety for people in terms of the mental challenges they might be facing. But what are we trying to accomplish with quality work inside a long run, Steve? And then maybe give us some examples. Sure. So what we're trying to do, basically, we do a couple of different things. Actually, I should even maybe even preface it to say more than a couple of different things. I think a lot of times we do a lot of different things. (laughs) Um, It just really depends on, number one, what's worked in the past. Number two, what our athletes have come to expect. Number three, whatever whims or crazy ideas I happen to come up with during the last cycle before that or whatever programming I've seen that's worked for other people I'll throw in sometimes. Um, And then also, but most importantly, Chris, and this goes back to this basic point of this entire episode and all the last three episodes that we did is my main thinking here is when we do these long run workouts, it's how do I get my athlete ready for what they're going to feel from mile 20 to mile 26.2. So what does the race require? And it's specifically in the marathon, how do I simulate a workout experience where I don't have to run 26 miles to get the feeling that they are run that they've run 26, that they're at mile 24 and mile 25 and mile 26 as they're finishing the end of that quality work. And so you know, we've got a wide variety of different workouts that we utilize. Some of them are 16 miles long, some are 18 miles long, some are 20 miles long, some are 22 and even 24 miles long. And they're all basically trying to dial in this basic need that I feel my athletes need to be ready to handle the physiological and psychological challenges they're going to be presented with over those final miles. And Chris, it's so important that those two things be worked in conjunction. You know, those two things be thought of not as separate things. You know, I think a lot of, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I've been working on some mental training protocols and some mental training programming that we'll be announcing later um, in the fall or maybe even in the spring, depending on the timing of it. But I've been spending a lot of time working on the mental training. And I realized listening to many of our podcasts and reading a lot of different things that people have written about mental training, how much it seems to be discussed out of context of the experience of running itself. And I know we've addressed this, Chris, and we try really hard to do it, but I'm beginning to realize that it's, that, that it's really hard to get our listeners to, to, to understand how important it is for you to be dealing with the same mental demons that you're dealing with at the end of the race while your body is failing. And no visualization technique, no self-talk technique, 
no technique like that can really get you prepared for what the hell is going to be going on those last few miles. And so these race, these these race prep workouts or these big efforts, these quality long runs, as we've started calling them on our podcast training group, these quality long runs become so important because we're trying for these very few opportunities, maybe three or four opportunities we have in any training cycle to be able to dovetail the physiological and psychological components that are going on simultaneously over the final miles and get them to play out in a training opportunity so that people are ready for it. So that's really what we're doing, Chris, you know, and that's what we're really trying to optimize. So what will these look like? Well, shit, I could give you dozens of, (laughs) I can give you dozens of examples, but let me give people, I'll basically give two Chris and then I'll leave one open for you. Okay. So you can choose another one. Um, The first one I'm going to discuss is just basically a progressive pace run. And our listeners have heard us talk about progressive pace runs. We've gone over them many, many times. But the progressive pace run for a marathon is a little bit different. And I usually like to see an 18 to 20-mile progressive pace run. And I don't have my runners go much further than that with progression runs, primarily because the idea of this is to really try to ramp up getting faster and faster. And it's really fucking hard for anybody to stay patient enough to do these right And if you try to do a progression run that's 22 or 24 miles, it's just a long experience of suffering and sucking. And a lot of people will throw the towel in because they just think, what's the fucking point? And so I keep it limited because of that. But let me give an example of a 20-mile progressive pace run that our podcast training group is doing this cycle and our team road group does. So this run consists of basically four miles run really easily. And this is really important. I know in a race you don't get a chance to warm up. And some of my workouts don't have warm-ups in them. We've got one coming up very soon where my athletes have no warm-up. But the idea here is just to let yourself get warm and get some miles under your legs. And then what we do is we do eight miles where I'm asking them to run marathon goal pace plus marathon goal pace plus 15 seconds per mile. Now, I don't know if our listeners are going to think that's really crazy fast or not, but anybody that's done this workout they'll realize that that's not very hard to do, that that's pretty, it feels pretty comfortable. Um, My team road group frequently will do damn near half their damn long runs at these paces, which is not recommended. But I've had people when they've done this run say, well, damn, I do almost all my long runs at that pace. Well, that's a problem. That means that they're underperforming on race day and overperforming in training. But this isn't something eight miles at this 15 seconds slower than MGP is not super, super hard. It's what comes after that that's hard. So without a break, and this is a continuous run, Chris, there's no break in it. Then they go into, after those eight miles at 15 seconds plus MGP, they'll go into six miles at MGP. And this is where the real challenge comes in. This is the nut cutting time. This is come to Jesus. Are you ready psychologically and physiologically for what's going to happen? And this is where people start to really, really struggle because they're thinking two things. Number one, this is a long way to go. I'm already at 12 miles. How can I be expected to run six miles at my MGP? Well, I hate to tell you this, folks, but you're trying to run 20 fucking six miles at MGP. So we've got to do some work at this pace. So this is really about that mental preparation of getting them locked and loaded and getting them in that space where they start to run at that MGP. So they run six miles at their MGP And if possible, Chris, they run this thing off. They finish their last two miles of this run because that six miles will get them basically to the 18-mile mark. They try to close off at 10 seconds faster than their MGP if possible. And I'm always telling people, because I keep it at 20 miles, if they can go faster than 10 seconds faster than MGP at the end of this run, they're free to do it. 
If they want to run half marathon goal pace, fuck, if they want to run 10K pace, they can run 10K pace if they think they can do it. Because we're only running 20 miles, and I usually put these 20-mile progression runs, they sit somewhere um, really in the middle portion, beginning to middle portion of my training cycle because I don't expect full and complete success rate at them. It, it really gives them a plenty of time to recover, and it really gets them an idea of where they are at the time in this. So this progression run I love to do pretty early in a cycle. In fact, this is the time of the year for our folks doing CIM prep where this progression run is already taking place. Our team road group has done it. Our group that's doing our podcast training, that's coming up in their cycle very soon, this 20-mile progressive pace run. So another one that we love to do, Chris, is the Tiger Run, which we've talked about, I think, on this podcast before, which was really inspired by Bill Squires's um, adapted long. We adapted this to the his Squires' long runs, which is basically we've got an eighteen mile version and a twenty mile version. And what this basically consists of is easy running early and easy running late. So we do easy running on the eighteen mile version. It's six miles of easy running. On the twenty mile version, it's ten miles of easy running. And then the thing that's exactly the same is in both of these, the 18 and the 20 mile version, our runners are doing eight continuous sets of 90 seconds at their 10K pace and then five minutes at their marathon pace. So this is six and a half minutes of work, but they fix, they get their watches set to do nine, to, to bleep at 90 seconds and then to beep at six and a half minutes. So 90 seconds and then five minutes of they go 90 seconds at 10K, five minutes at marathon pace. 90 seconds at 10K, five minutes at marathon pace. Two amazing things happen here. It's kind of like the really similar to the Canova workout where people are beginning to recover. I'm putting quotation marks, air quotes around recover. They're recovering or getting their rest at their marathon goal pace. This puts the tiger in the cat, as Bill Squires used to say. This is what makes athletes really psychologically prepared for big racing at the marathon level. So they'll do eight sets of that, Chris. So that's eight times six and a half minutes. And I can't remember exactly what the number comes out to, but I think it's somewhere around 40, 54 minutes worth of work. It's somewhere in that ballpark range, I believe. And then I'll ask them, if they're 18 milers, they do four miles down. So that was six miles easy and four miles easy to, 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 to um, bookend that eight sets. And for the 20 milers, it's two miles down. So they will have done 10 miles and two miles to bookend those eight sets. So those are two examples I have. What I know you've got um, other ones, maybe the McClung special or something else. What other ones would you suggest for long run quality, Chris? Yeah, so my... My favorite is the McClung Special, as we've named it. I I didn't name it that. You named it that. But but it's a race where you get, in my opinion, a true start and finish simulation. Not a race. A long run where you get a true start and a true finish simulation. And that's what I like about it. And I frequently will have this as my last long run quality workout that people will do prior to their race, which generally comes anywhere from three to five weeks out from their race, just depending on how things fall. But it's structured this way where they'll they'll do five miles easy. They'll do a five-mile start simulation, basically starting the next five miles at marathon goal play pace plus 30 seconds, and then working down to marathon pace over those first five miles in progression. They do one mile easy. Then they go into a three-mile fartlek where they'll alternate between one minute on at 5K or 10K efforts and one minute off. Not really worrying so much about the pace there, but just trying to 
to get on it for those one minute on sessions. And then do another one mile easy and then a five mile finish simulation where they'll start at marathon goal pace and try to progress down to half marathon pace over the final five miles of that 20 mile run. And I like it because it not only gives you the opportunity to practice starting conservatively, slower than marathon pace, not too fast, and then feeling your way to marathon pace in that opening segment, but also then your legs feel like you're running the last five miles of the race at the end because of that intense fart lick in the middle. And so it gives a really good finish simulation for how you should be able to try to close out these races, even though your legs are tired. And so that's one I always kind of put as a capstone in my program for, for a lot of the folks in my group. Now, as we kind of wrap up this bit on these long runs with pace work, you know, generally for somebody who's doing six or seven 20 milers in a cycle, we like to have them do three to four of these race preps or quality runs in the long run. Now, that's sort of for our kind of general advanced athlete. Now, your team rogue athletes or, or uh, my teammates will do potentially quality in almost every long run they do. And so that's sort of a second workout of the week that they get built into the long run every single week for the most advanced of advanced in terms of the marathon. And then we'd like to have the last one, as I said, come kind of three to five weeks out from race day, ideally three to four, depending on how things fall within your schedule. But this work, in addition to long runs, is so important because as you said, Steve, there's only so far you can get with sort of mental gymnastics. Uh, what you have to ultimately do is put that all into practice, pair the mental with the physical, and get to the point where you've had wins and losses in training. You've worked through all kinds of scenarios through this pace work so that by the time it comes to race day, your response when the going gets tough is a subconscious visceral reaction to fight whatever pain may be coming your way versus something that you have to like work out with a therapist in the moment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we're trying to train you to do is basically have this built in killer instinct, so to speak. And, and, uh, to, to steal from Bill Squire's quote, you know, these long runs with pace work, put, put the tiger in the cat. You know, Chris, one of the things that's really key about this and, you know, our, as, as we, as I said, to start this off, um, you know, we really have had this great chance over the many years to, to, to test run a lot of these things. And one of the things that I've test run and, and Team Rogue has been um, the absolute, an absolute gift to me as a coach, because my athletes come present and correct ready, trusting me for some fucking ungodly reason to put them into harm's way on a consistent basis. Um, and then getting great results as we've been getting lately great results because we've been able to do these, this program and try, we've tried and tested this program. But one thing that's really changed over the years with my team rogue programming, and that's now going through with the podcast training program is I'm making my athletes frequently go in. I, I have so many hard quality long runs and I'm thinking less about what happens during the week for them. I'm making sure they get a medium long run and I'm making sure they get some quality work in each week, hopefully hitting most of the energy systems. 
But also one of the things I'm doing, Chris, is I'm putting in workouts so that runners are, I'm designing these long run workouts and I'm designing their overall macro cycle to be sure that they're bookending, they're doing, they're doing workouts on either end tired. So they're either doing 5K or 10K pace work or half marathon pace work on a Thursday before they go into a Saturday long run quality workout. Or they're coming out of a Saturday long run quality workout with a Sunday and a Monday either easy or off as the case may be for some of them. And then on Tuesday, I've got a hard workout for them, 5K, 10K half marathon workout where I'm basically considering that cycle as two pieces of the same workout divided by the X number of hours that I have for them to be doing it. And so frequently our podcast training group people and our team rogue athletes, Chris, they're telling me I'm so tired coming into or out of this workout. And it's really hard sometimes because I feel like maybe, maybe and as we get to the end of these cycles, there's been times in the past, Chris, where I thought maybe I'm pushing too hard. Maybe I'm overextending them. Maybe this is the time where we break and my athletes crack and they snap and they all fail. But holy shit, if they don't step up and stand and deliver and give great results time and time again, whether that's because of the trust they have in us or if it's because of the resiliency that the program has created over time or if it's just that I, we just happen to just get the most badass motherfuckers in the world show up to our workouts, I don't know which it is. But I'll tell you that it's shocking to me all the time how much athletes can step up. But that key thing, Chris, is that I'm programming and I'm thinking about things, not just in the microcosm of that one single workout, but what's happening over this two-week period or what's happening over this 72-hour window of time or 48-hour window of time, depending on the case may be, for getting in the load necessary to help them be resilient and tough and ready to go if they'll trust where we're at. And for our folks in Austin, what's great is that we'll st- you and I get to stand there and we get to, we get to talk them through it. You know, we get to walk them through it. And for our folks in our podcast group, we get to work them through it on the Facebook page. Yes, that's to be expected. Yes, is the ex- this is the experience that occurs and get them really ready for what the race requires. So, you know, to all our listeners who have been on the fence about either training and without about training with us in some regard, this is the things, these are the things that we're bringing to bear in our podcast training group that are really next level shit. And it's not happening in every program out there because they don't have the ability to be nuanced and to roll with the punches and make individual adjustments as the time comes. So these are really important things to think about when people are thinking about how they're getting ready for their marathon. Yeah, I agree completely with all of that, Steve. I was actually having that a conversation similar to that with one of our athletes this past weekend after the long run, we did a progression with team rogue on Thursday and then a long run with quality where we had two, six mile segments at marathon goal pace during the long run on the weekend. And that topic came up, which is basically that those two workouts, even though distinct in terms of their time frame, were basically stacked on top of each other to build resilience for the race. One other thing I want to remind people of in terms of these long runs with quality work is that they're also a really good chance to practice race day apparel, footwear, nutrition, all the other pieces that you're going to bring into a race, including what you might eat the night before, the morning of, 
all of those things so that it's a true dress rehearsal. It gives you an opportunity in three or four important long runs to really practice the full tools that you're bringing into your race and, and experiment with those things so you can adjust them as needed before you get to race day. Now let's talk about the midweek workouts and, you know, with our, with our athletes, we also tend to, once we get into a pure marathon cycle, we like longer workouts generally, but also it's interesting because, you know, other than that, other than the fact that the workouts are a little bit longer and, and as a result, perhaps more difficult because of that, the midweek workouts are really come at from a variety of places in terms of trying to work a lot of different energy systems. We don't typically accept in the final phase of really race race specific preparation. We don't do a lot of marathon goal pace work inside of our normal midweek workouts. Otherwise it's a lot of half marathon pace, 10 K pace, five K pace on occasion to work all energy systems during the week to support what you're doing during those long run workouts. So talk about that, Steve. Talk about kind of our approach to the quality side of things. So the the idea here, Chris, is really that I've learned over the years that with the window of time we have between but when folks show up to run with us at 5.30 and when they need to really be done, which is typically by about 7 a.m., that I just wasn't – I just wasn't in a situation where I was able to get done what I really needed to do from a long run perspective, from a, from a quality workout perspective that would be specific enough for marathon training. So that's why we switched to so many quality long runs and looking at our long runs from a, a really getting a whole lot of work done perspective. Um, and that lent me the ability to really make sure that I was hitting every energy system I needed to hit in a marathon cycle. Of course, always working more to the 5K, 10K zones early on in the cycle, which is most people's weaknesses, and then working towards the half marathon and marathon zones late in the cycle, generally, because that's people's strengths. And so following that sort of same protocol that we've talked about many times, working your weaknesses early, working your strengths late so that you feel strong and getting ready for the marathon, but generally still keeping a wide variety of different things in there. Um, again, because of that, I'm always looking at maximizing that Thursday to Saturday workout when the time comes, when I need those key workouts that kind of look back to back over a basically kind of a 48 hour period of time or a 48 hour window. But that's the biggest thing that we do is really use my, really use the weekday runs to hit the VO2 max and the anaerobic threshold, the steady work, and then also to hit the community and the camaraderie, because sometimes those long quality runs don't get a lot of conversation done in them. And so one of the reasons why people sign up for Rogue is that they've got the ability to be in a community and have a team of people to work with and talk to. And this gives them an opportunity to do that. So, you know, there's a couple of different things in play there, Chris, that we're looked at, that we're looking at, but primarily it's facilitation and working facilitation and working all the other systems that we need to work to be sure our athletes are ready to go for a marathon outside of what's going on in that quality long run day. Yeah. And that's going to look similar to things people might see in other programming. I think we have a few 
workouts that are unique to our world that at least in, in terms of our everyday runner training that we like to mix in, you know, example of that would be the Canova 800s or Canova Ks, depending on the level of athlete we'll have, we'll have runners do in and out 800s or in and out thousands at certain paces in order to get a long sustained workout alternating between sometimes it's 10k and half marathon pace, sometimes 10k and marathon pace, but they're getting a long sustained period of work, potentially four to six continuous miles of work at a variety of paces so that, you know, it's, it's hard both mentally and physically. So you're building physical resilience as well as mental resilience during those midweek workouts. But we will also do, you know, our share of 800s on occasion or mile repeats here and there, sometimes 2K repeats. We do a lot of things that look similar to what might you, what you might see in another program, but that is often, you know, for our kind of normal rogue athlete, anywhere from four to five miles of work. And for our team rogue athlete, anywhere from six to eight, sometimes nine miles of work inside a, a given weekday workout. Yep. So it's nothing unusual. Just we tend to extend it for our marathoners. And then, of course, as you said, we keep that VO2 max, that that faster 5K and 10K work mixed in throughout a cycle. We like to do it especially during our down weeks when we get in the middle of a cycle so that we keep the lights on, we keep the fast twitch muscles working while we're doing all of that really intense marathon work so that you don't lose the speed that you're going to need, that you're going to need the economy that you're going to need to close out the race at the very, very end. Anything else from a workout standpoint, Steve? No, I think we hit the vast majority of it. You know, one thing that I think is really important, Chris, is, one of the things, one of the workouts we have in our cycle, we, we do a, one thing that we do that's a little different or, or at least it's really, really specific to our program is on our drop weeks, on our drop weeks, we have a few things we really focus on. We focus on economy primarily. And the reason why we, we wait to the, to the down weeks to work on economy is because everybody's volume is a little bit lower. And they're usually ready to get a little speedy and turnover. I usually try to do that drop on that drop week. I usually try to do that economy work, whatever I'm doing with that um, on the Thursday, preferably because they've gotten a few more days of rest and recuperation and maybe their volume has been a little lower on the four, three days or four days prior to it. But we love to do straights and curbs, 12 times 200 at 5K pace. Now we've been playing a little bit with doing things like nine times 300 at 3K or 1500 pace because we went through an entire speed development cycle with our athletes. So they've seen these, um, they've been able to do work that's true, true economy for an extended three month window. So now they're able to do this faster paced work that more of the elite level athletes do. And I really like to do that on the drop week because it, 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 it's less dangerous. Most people are more recovered. If they're not recovered from it after the Thursday, they've still got an easy Friday. And then the long run is usually only 14 to 16 miles. And I usually give a, a, a long window there. So one of the things to think about is if you're going to do some economy work and you're going to do anything faster than 5K pace work, choose to do that on your drop week. 
and choose to do it in the middle or near the end of your drop week whenever possible. That's the only other point I'd like to make about the specific training that we do on the days um, during the week and, and how I design it for our team road group and for our podcast training group. Yep. And one clarification I wanted to make as I think about it is when I said four to five miles of work for our normal rogue and six to nine for team rogue, that's excluding warm up and cool down. So those athletes might be getting seven or eight total miles on the day for our normal rogue athlete and 10 to 12 total miles on the day with warm up and cool down for our team rogue athlete. So you're getting properly warmed up and cooled down afterward as well. I've got a couple other things I wanted to talk about in terms of what the race requires. And the next thing we'll talk about is nutrition because obviously with the marathon distance and time frame and the way you're running it in terms of speed, how you think about in-race nutrition is absolutely critical. And that's something you have to practice throughout your cycle. Now we've talked about this on a dedicated episode for the main for this podcast before so you can go back and listen to that i won't belabor the entire sort of set of options in terms of how you experiment with nutrition but i just want to emphasize that that's something you should be practicing we typically recommend that once your runs get over 2 hours in length that you're then practicing your nutrition after that on as many runs as possible in order to dial in what works for you on race day because ultimately we don't have enough fuel on our bodies in our glycogen stores in order to run as fast as we need to to complete a full marathon and so you're going to have to tap into your fat stores and you're going to have to bring in external stores of energy in order to make sure you can sustain your pace for the long haul so Wanted to make sure we remind people of that and make sure they're experimenting with it. Anything to, to add there, Steve? So the only thing I would add to here, Chris, is just this idea that we've been playing with a lot more consistently, which is the no nutrition runs. Um, we've discussed this on a number of other podcast episodes. I know it's something that people are kind of intrigued in or interested in, but they're also scared shitless about. Our, believe me, our Team Rogue group, when I first implemented these things, I started with a 30-mile no-nutrition run, which made people's jaws drop and they got all freaked out. But it made me realize that people could survive damn near anything, and it was actually really advantageous to go pretty long. So now we've gotten to the point where we've added these no-nutrition runs in, and we usually try to get at least two in a cycle and, and preferably three where and when we can in a cycle. And these no-nutrition runs, for those who are uninitiated or have not listened to any of our other podcasts, they're basically runs in which we decide not to take any nutrition the morning of the run. And that means that in the morning you can have tea or coffee, caffeine, whatever you want, but preferably no sugar. So if you're a cap, if you drink caffeine and you take a bunch of sugar or you do with your tea or your coffee, do not put the sugar in it or skip it. But we don't want any carbohydrates. We don't want any sugars. Your last meal of the night, we'd like it to be preferably before the eight o'clock hour of the night before you run. Um, if you can make it even earlier than that, it's better. We want you to go into this run basically semi-fasted. Um, it's kind of like the idea of intermittent fasting. You've just limited the window of time that you've been eating so that you're working. Your body is starting to work with its fat stores when you blow through your your whatever basic glycogen or sugar stores you have in your system, which will happen eventually 
for most people at that hour and a half, hour 45, two hour window, people start to run out of fuel. And they shift their body, shift, they run out of, out of carbohydrate fuel and they shift to fat burning. And the reason we do this no nutrition run is not necessarily to get your body, not necessarily so much to, to get your body better at burning fat fuels, although there is a benefit from it. But mostly, our, that is a benefit and is something we like to do, but mostly so people will get used to the fact of what happens when you shift from sugar fuels to fat fuels. There's a bonk that happens, and that's what the wall is, in my opinion, that people have been talking about for so many years at the 20-mile mark. It's a, it's, a, it's a spot where your body shifts from burning sugar fuels and carbohydrate fuels to, sh- to working fat fuels. And if you've never done that before and you've never worked on it before, it's a shock to the system. And so we do the no nutrition run mostly just to get people ready for what the race requires and to get them in a position where they can manage it. And so you carry a gel with you on the run. You typically want this run to be 20. You can do We do it sometimes at 18 miles and that's sort of as an intro so you don't freak people out, but it's really beneficial at 20, 22, and even 24 miles, depending on what distances you're going to have in your in your marathon training cycle. But I highly encourage you to do at least one no nutrition run and preferably two or three in your buildup to try to get your body used to shifting out of burning carbohydrate fuels and into burning fat fuels. And especially the way the psychology of that plays out in the context of what's happening on the run course as you're doing the run. So yes, no nutrition. The thing I would remind people there is that it's definitely a more advanced concept in terms of nutri- no nutrition, in terms of nutrition. And I would ask them to, to dial in and figure out their baseline nutrition program first in terms of in-run nutrition, whether they're using gels or you can or choose of some variety before they experiment with the no nutrition stuff for sure. All right. The last thing we'll talk about and then we'll wrap it is strength. Obviously, strength can help you no matter what, regardless of what running distance you're, you're working on. And and yet, I think in some ways, the marathon, it might be more important than any of them. Perhaps the 800, it's also super important because of the power involved with that and the 1500. But the marathon, it's also hypercritical. I think in some, in some ways, you can get away with not doing a bunch of strength work if you're doing a half marathon or 10K. But when it comes to the marathon, I think it's a must. It's a must, even if it's just simple body weight exercises. And so we want to also remind you that to incorporate some basic strength routine within your training. It could be as advanced as doing some sort of power kind of lifting concept with the personal trainer. It could be as simple as pulling a 15 minute core routine off of the internet. You know, I think if you're going to keep keep it super super simple and start somewhere, you can probably spend 10 to 15 minutes a few times a week doing basic lunges and core exercises like planks and probably get most of what you need if you're starting from zero. But having some basic strength protocol is going to not only keep you healthy through some of this intense training, but it's also going to give you resilience at the end of the marathon to be able to hold to the very end. So don't neglect your strength training. I would just encourage you to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're doing it consistently because I know oftentimes with our busy schedules, if we're already running a lot of miles and doing crazy long runs and so forth, it's hard to fit that into the routine. 
So just make sure that whatever you do, you're able to do it consistently because a few things done consistently are going to be way more powerful than a lot of things done inconsistently. So if you're starting from scratch on this, I would just recommend starting with some very basic body weight exercises, Get the, getting that into your routine a couple times a week, and then building from there if it's working for you. Again, to me, lunges and planks could be the, the, the most simple form of this, but there's obviously you know a few other basic things you could add to a very simple body weight routine that would get you ready to close out a marathon in fine fashion. So with that as the final sort of recommendation, we will we're going to wrap this episode, Steve. I think we've covered a lot of ground, covered even some new ground for us, and potentially answered some of the questions that you guys might have about marathon training. I would encourage you, if you have follow-up questions on any episode in this series, particularly this one, please do send those to us via email, chris at roguerunning.com. We're going to be recording a listener question podcast next week. And so if you get this before Wednesday or so of this week, then you know definitely send us an email and we can answer some of those questions about this series. But hopefully you learned something. Hopefully this will make you a stronger marathon as a marathoner as a result. This has been episode 91 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.